I'm going to ask you a question this morning. Simple, but straightforward. Obsessed or lukewarm? When it comes to your relationship with Christ, which are you? Obsessed with Christ or lukewarm? Been reading this book that was recommended to me by somebody in this congregation called Crazy Love. It's the pastor's pick of the month. <laughs> and we've got some copies out there at the information desk if you are interested in reading it. And I don't need to say anything more than obsessed or lukewarm. Because by the time you're done answering, the, uh, reading this book, you will answer that question. Whether you want to or not. Because it will answer it for you. I highly recommend this book. It's an easy read, but it's not an easy application. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to be crazy in love with you. I think that's most of our desire. For most of us. And yet as I contemplate that, as I have read that book and as I look into your word, I realize that being crazy in love with you is not something that we're, most of us are ready to take on because of what it requires. Help us, Father, by the power of your spirit to realize what it is in our lives that we need to do to be more in love with you. Wash us clean by your word this morning. Fill us with your spirit. Move us in our souls that we may become more like Jesus. For I ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. There's a story that's told of a church building which burned to the ground. And this tragic event unfortunately left the members of the church with no place to meet together for services. And ironically, the only facility available on a Sunday morning was the local bar. Now these days, lots of churches meet in bars in the big cities, so it's not so strange. But then it was kind of an odd occurrence. One of the attractions of this bar was a loquacious parent who, through his constant and excessive talking, kept the patrons well entertained. On the first Sunday morning of the church's new meeting place, the parrot managed to sit quietly through most of the service. However, during a silent moment of reflection, he broke the stillness and brought forth his interpretation of the morning. New bartender. <laughs> New piano player. Same old group of people. <laughs> Author George Malone asked some very poignant questions. Will the church remain the same old group of people? Can we enter the Christian faith? and live in the Christian community and not be radically different from the world. 
Those are good questions. Serious ones. Will we, can we, should we remain the same? The answer to those questions are inseparably tied to an accurate understanding of just what it is that Jesus is doing in the church and the purpose for which he laid down his life for us. According to Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 26 and 27, Jesus died and now lives so that he may present to himself a spotless, wrinkle-free bride. Is that right? If that's true, and indeed it is, what are the implications of that to us as Christians? I want you to listen to the tag team exhortations of the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's listen to what he says. First, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 21. Uh, 24. With the Lord's authority, let me say this, live no longer as the ungodly do, for they are hopelessly confused. Their closed minds are full of darkness. They are far away from the life of God because they have shut their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They don't care anymore about right and wrong, and they have given themselves over to immoral ways. Their lives are filled with all kinds of impurity and greed, but that isn't what you were taught when you learned about Christ. Since you have heard all about him and have learned the truth that is in Jesus, throw off your old evil nature and your former way of life, which is rotten through and through, full of lust and deception. Instead, there must be a spiritual renewal of your thoughts and attitudes. You must display a new nature because you are a new person created in God's likeness righteous holy and true here's what Jesus said you are the salt of the earth but if the salt has become tasteless how can it be made salty again it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men and I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it into language we can all understand in the message, that verse. He says, let me tell you while you're here, Jesus says, you're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? As Christ followers, we're not here to blend into society so well that we lose our flavor or our distinctiveness. We should have a radically different philosophy of life. We should have a drastically different worldview. And we possess a wonderfully unique set of core values and an impetus for living. We, in fact, are, according to the scriptures, the sons and daughters of a perfectly pure, morally sound, and completely good father. Amen? We are the spiritual offspring of a holy God. God our Father, from the beginning of creation, elected to draw out and earmark for himself a people, a people who would glorify his name. He desires that his name be great among the nations. And to accomplish that mission, he has chosen to spiritually and practically fine-tune each one of us both corporately and individually. 
We're being spiritually wired up to bring honor and glory to that name, his name. And you know whose reputation is at stake? It's not ours. It's God's. Now, don't underestimate God's intention when you come to Christ. When God deals with us, he's out to totally rearrange our personal lives and our corporate structures. God's bold desire is for the holiness of his people. He's not just interested in us living holy lives, but something much more intense than that. He's interested in us becoming holy people. And if there is one segment of our lives, I suppose, in which that fact becomes particularly blurry, it is in the realm of relationships. Whether it involves business partnerships, religious involvements, close intimate associations, God's desire is for spiritual Solidarity, oneness. And that's especially true in the most intimate and significant relationship God has ordained. You know what that is? Marriage. Even a brief survey of the Old and New Testaments reveals a recurring yet predominantly ignored principle concerning this issue. And a neglect of this principle, this truth, reaps disastrous fruit. Because to ignore that truth that God sets forth in his word, families are destroyed, governments crumble, nations are overcome, truth erodes, religions disintegrate, morals collapse, and people are in, become enslaved. And I'm not trying to be an alarmist. This is the absolute truth of what history proves and what God's word says. And when we turn a deaf ear to it, we become in bondage. And it happens so often, and it has happened so often in human history, that you would think that we would all catch on. Because it happened in Abraham's day. It happened in Isaac and Jacob's day. It happened in Moses, David's, and Solomon's day. It happened in Malachi's day. And as you can guess, when Malachi speaks, we come face to the face reality that it's still happening today. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Malachi. We're going back there. Continuing on in our study. Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 12 this morning. And it illustrates for us without apology and in no uncertain terms that when we compromise God's principles, we lose our distinctiveness as his people. And the principle is as contemporary as it is cliche. And here it is. Relational compromise leads to spiritual corruption. Relational compromise leads to spiritual corruption. Malachi 2, verses 10 to 12. Follow with me. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? 
Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. I'm just going to end right there on that verse for now. Now, the pattern of spiritual erosion in the book of Malachi should literally terrify us. If you've been following this series as we've been going along through it, it should terrify us as we see the unmistakable parallels unfold in our own time. So far, we've seen that spiritual erosion begins when people begin to doubt God's love for them, which paves the way for them to dishonor God's name and despise God's worship. And from there, religious leaders defect from God's truth, which derails God's people. And the result of God's people getting so far off track is that they begin to deny God's covenant and ultimately attempt to redefine God's will. Now, denying God's covenant is exactly what relational compromise is all about in this passage of Scripture. Marital infidelity and impurity was something that characterized these people of Malachi's day. Wrong marriages had taken place, and the concept of no-fault divorce had escalated the problem to epidemic proportions. And God did not censor his words on dealing with this issue. If you look down further, which we're going to deal with in a couple of weeks in Malachi 2, verses 13, 14, and 16, we find out God's strong words on the subject. I hate it. He couldn't pick stronger words in the Old Testament. Nowhere in the Bible is God's hatred of this practice more clearly revealed than in these verses in Malachi. His heart is inflamed because, why? Because of what it does to the people involved. And God loves people. God loves people. Amen. He loves you. And when God says don't, God's really saying don't hurt yourself. The fact is the priests and the people here were violating an unconditional covenant and it was killing them spiritually. Not only were they divorcing their wives, but worse, the reason they were doing it was in order to marry outside the boundaries which God had ordained for them. They were divorcing their Jewish wives to marry foreigners who worshipped other gods. Which God had forbidden, forbidden them to do in the Old Testament by covenant. As one writer pointed out, marriage is ordained by God and has the potential for being a spiritual catalyst. But marriage to the wrong person is one of the fastest routes to spiritual decay. Let me just throw this out for you to think about. You'll be dealing with it in your small groups. 
How do you think this statement relates to the contemporary same-sex marriage issue or civil unions issue? You need to wrestle with that. The relational crises of the priests and people created fertile soil for a nation's spiritual crisis here. And the same exact characteristics of spiritual erosion are rocking the church today and the downward trajectory is absolutely devastating. I wish I could describe to you the feeling that I get, and I'm sure that Henry and Glenn get, every time we talk to a Christian wife or a Christian husband whose spouse has left them for someone else, and inevitably for an unbeliever, and has abandoned not only them and their children, their family and their friends, but the faith as well. It's like getting hit with a spiritual wrecking ball. That's what it feels like. And I believe that Jesus weeps over that. I believe he weeps over that. The Father is hurt and the Spirit is grieved. I want you to, I want you to see something that I ran across this week in my devotions which just hit me so hard and I've been chewing on it all week long. It's in, it's in Ezekiel chapter 6. And verse 9, we'll go into the whole context here, but basically what's happening is God is denouncing the idolatrous worship of the nation of Israel, and he's telling them they're going into captivity, and he's telling them that what's going to happen in the future as they're judged. Verse 9, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive. Now, underline this. How I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts which turned away from me. I don't think there's anywhere else in the Old Testament where you read these words of God being hurt. Usually it's God doing the hurting. It literally means to be broken. I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts which turned away from me and by their eyes which played the harlot after their idols. And they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations. That's a, that's a verse worth meditating on. And you know that happens too often among God's people. The church needs a reminding word from God's messenger Malachi. What does Malachi say. Three very arresting things about relational compromise here in chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. First one is this. Wake up to the personal implications of relational compromise. Verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Now, as in the previous sections of this book, Malachi is dealing decisively with another aspect of how God's people typically denied and insulted the absolute love God had for them. The point he's hammering home here is covenant loyalty. And his language is pretty confusing in this text at times. As you read through this passage, which, by the way, is regarded by most scholars as, quote, the most difficult passage in the entire book, 
You wonder if Malachi is talking about idolatry or adultery. If you read through that passage again, you, you kind of flip-flop back and forth in your mind. Is he talking about physical intermarriage or spiritual intermarriage? Someone has called it intentional ambiguity. I believe the ideas are mixed together here because they are so powerfully linked together spiritually in the scriptures. Two powerful passages of scripture lay the identical framework for the issue, this issue of relational compromise. Follow along with me if you will. Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verses 1 to 4. This is what uh, Moses is saying here to the people. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, and clears away the many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Note verse 4. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will quickly destroy you. Okay, so that's the Old Testament. Turn to the New Testament now in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. See how parallel these, these scriptures run. Verse 14, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among their midst, be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilements of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. When we compromise relationally speaking, we inevitably end up corrupted spiritually. That's what these texts are saying. And I believe Malachi lays out the personal implications of that in verse 10. First of all, he says, relational compromise denies our spiritual communion with God. Do we not have one Father, Malachi says? Has not one God created us? Now, Malachi's not getting liberal or politically correct with us here. He's not referring to the universal brotherhood of man. He's referring to the fact that God's chosen people share a unique and exclusive communion with God as their father. Listen to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 43.1. He said, But now, thus says the Lord your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. That's pretty clear. You're my people. I redeemed you. 
I called you. Now, the spiritual relationship of God as father to his children is being stressed here. And on the basis of his covenant and by adoption, they were his sons and daughters. Listen to Deuteronomy 7 again. Not the first four verses, but now we'll pick it up in verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces to destroy them. He will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment and the statutes and the judgments which I am commanding you today to do them. Now, in the New Testament, we find the distinction is identical. God is Father in the spiritual sense only to those who are rightly related to him through faith in Jesus Christ. We become his sons and daughters by adoption. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17 says this. All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. What's this saying? Is that our spiritual communion with God is exclusive and it is to be honored. Relational compromise denies that exclusivity and destroys that honor. Secondly, in verse 10, Malachi says, relational compromise defrauds our spiritual connection with others. Malachi laments the fact that his brothers and sisters by covenant, they were breaking faith with each other. Why do we deal treacherously, each against his brother, it says? And the word literally means to, to cloak things over, to act falsely, deceitfully, covertly. It describes a person who does not honor an agreement. You know what it is? It's aggressive unfaithfulness, treachery. Treachery is exactly the charge that God slaps on these Israelites who were marrying foreign women. They were denying their covenant relationship with God and destroying the unity of their people by intermarrying with idolatrous nations. The problem was that they didn't see it as treachery. They were too self-absorbed. They knew that what they were doing was a blatant sin against God, they knew that the scriptures said what they should be doing, yet they didn't see it as a sin against their brothers or sisters in the Lord. And that's where the problem lies. We don't see that kind of thing as treachery either, do we? 
third grade Sunday school teacher was uneasy about her particular lesson for that day in class because it was on the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And by way of introduction, she asked the class, would someone please explain to me what adultery means? One young sage answered matter-of-factly, adultery is when a kid lies about his age. People in the body of Christ do the same exact thing that that young man did today. They redefine the term adultery to suit their own needs. They don't think that their adultery or divorce will affect anyone but themselves and their immediate family. They don't think that by marrying a non-believer that it will affect the church at all. But the problem is, is that the sin of one affects the lives of all. Everybody in the body of Christ suffers. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. These are some very hard verses of Scripture that we're covering today. But remember, they are verses of Scripture, God's Word. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's the will of God. When you read in the Bible, this is the will of God, take notice. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man, now watch this, transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. It affects other people. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You know, when the church refuses to deal with this issue from a spiritual standpoint, that's when the erosion starts to begin. Here's the reality of it, friends, frankly. We say that we want to be more devoted to Christ. We say that we don't want to be lukewarm, that we want to be obsessed with Christ. We say that we want to experience a closeness with God that is beyond description, that literally other people can see and envy. And yet, we are for the most part unwilling to do what that takes, what it takes to get to that place. And I'm just as guilty as anybody else. When Jesus says, you can't be my disciple unless you take up your cross and deny yourself daily and follow me, what does that mean? How serious are those words? We can't live the kind of life Christ has called us to if we aren't willing to take the heat for standing strong against what everyone else around us is willing to condone for fear of being called judgmental or ostracized. Francis Chan, again in this book, put it this way. I love this statement, but it's very convicting to me. Something is wrong when our lives make sense to unbelievers. Is that a good statement? 
Something is wrong when our lives make sense to unbelievers. How can we allow the kind of activity to go on that God calls at least five times in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 16, treachery? That's what he calls it. Five times in those five or six verses. And yet, how can we allow it to go on as the body of Christ? And just to note, by the way, to anyone who is tolerating a so-called Christian brother or sister's sinful behavior in this area, in order to maintain your friendship with them, don't expect someone who is false to their God to be true to you as a friend. It ain't going to happen. Because eventually they'll leave anyway. Relational compromise denies our spiritual communion with God. And it defrauds our spiritual connection with each other. And thirdly, Malachi says, relational compromise dissolves our spiritual commitment to the faith. Verse 10, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers. It profanes the covenant of our fathers, Malachi says. Literally, it bores a hole right through it. Literally is what the text says. Malachi isn't messing around here. He says, why are we desecrating the covenant of our fathers? We're breaking the covenant we made with God and doing violence to his word. Why? What was this covenant with our fathers that Malachi was referring to? Anybody want to venture a guess? Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. But before that, in Exodus chapter 19... Let me read you a couple of verses here. Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, says the Lord. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Look at chapter 24 of Exodus, and then verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, quote, All the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, quote, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Later on, Exodus chapter 34, we read something very similar. God said, Behold, I'm going to make a covenant before all your people. I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among all the nations, and all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. Be sure to observe that I am commanding you this day. Behold, if I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, Parasite, and Hivite, and Jebusite, watch yourselves that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you're going or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. 
For you shall not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods and someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you may take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. What's he saying? Again, Joshua called these people to account and they said, point blank, we will do what God has said. We will do it. And then here we are in Malachi's day in the cycle again where they did not do it. Noted philosopher Soren Kierkegaard warned that the day when Christianity and the world become friends, Christianity is done away with. And we should learn from Israel's past and wake up to the personal implications of relational compromise with the unbelieving world. Now, not only should we wake up, but Malachi says we ought to take note of the spiritual corruption which results from relational compromise. Time Magazine reported some years ago that the earthquake in Kobe, Japan, occurred when two plates on a fault line 15 miles offshore suddenly shifted against each other, violently lurching six to 10 feet in opposite directions. And the result, if you remember, was the worst Japanese earthquake since 1923. Thousands died. More than 46,000 buildings lay in ruins. One-fifth of the city's population was left instantly homeless. And the destruction left and unleashed by those tectonic plates depicts precisely what happens when a Christian bonds unequally with a non-Christian. Two people committed to each other, but going in opposite directions can only lead to trouble. Can only lead to trouble. Malachi gets very specific on this problem right here. Verse 11. Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. He calls it an abomination. Pretty strong language. Why? Because it desecrated the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. Now, for centuries, this practice had undermined the spiritual life of Israel, but they didn't learn. Now, I need to make something very clear here, that God's prohibition on certain marriages was not based on racial grounds. You need to know that. It was based on religious grounds. Not race, religion. As commentator Matthew Henry puts it, he says, the harm was not so much that she was the daughter of a strange nation, but the daughter of a strange God. Read it in the text. In essence, to marry a foreigner was to marry a false religion in the Old Testament the result of which was never good. And you can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 13. Now, I need to give you a little bit of a a disclaimer here because in the Old Testament, there literally were provisions made in the Old Testament for certain mixed marriages to take place. 
In fact, it was written that a mixed multitude went out from Egypt during the Exodus. But they had to submit, the foreigners had to submit to circumcision and keep the Jewish Passover. By doing so, in effect, what they were doing was they were committing themselves to the God of the Jews. Ruth, a Moabitess from the nations that we just read about that God was going to wipe out, was married to Boaz and was listed in Jesus' genealogy and lineage in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. But she had clearly forsaken the God of her people in favor of the true God of Israel. In one of the most beautiful statements of spiritual and personal commitment in Scripture, this is what she told Naomi, her mother-in-law. In Ruth chapter 1, we read, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. This is Naomi speaking. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Isn't that great? So it was fine for her and Boaz to be married. The critical issue here that Malachi speaks to was the fact that the people of God had married the daughter of a foreign god, which was in diametric opposition to Israel's god. The Jews had a saying back then that he that marries a heathen woman is as if he made himself son-in-law to an idol. That sounds pretty harsh. But the fact is that in order for a couple to maintain a healthy marriage relationship, common understanding must be reached on many, many fronts. Amen? And it's hard enough when you're both Christians. In the area of differing religions, someone is going to compromise. The sad truth is, is that historically, and most commonly, it is the people of God who compromise, not the other way around. Unfortunately, that's the way it is in most relationships where one is a believer and the other is not. That's why God warns us not to get involved seriously with someone who does not share your faith. Be careful about that. And there's no better example of that than the tragic reality of the life of one of Israel's premier kings. Guess who? Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 11. Very convicting. This is the wisest man in the world, by the way. King Solomon, it says in chapter 11, verse 1, loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord has said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you. For, what's it say? They will surely turn your heart away after their gods. It says Solomon held fast to these in love. 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives, what's it say? Turned his heart away. He turned his heart away. 
For when Solomon was, was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of his, David his father had been. This is Israel's most premier king other than David. Wisest man in the world. Totally blessed by God. You see the importance of this principle of relational compromise? Solomon's great wisdom did not immunize him against the pull of this temptation. His own self-convicting words ring through the pages of Scripture. Proverbs 25, 26 says, Like a trampled spring in a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. Relational compromise inevitably leads to spiritual compromise. I've seen it happen too many times, time and time again. And even those who have experienced the blessing of their unbelieving spouses coming to faith after their marriage testify that their faith was seriously compromised as long as that spiritual chasm existed between them. It wasn't an easy road. We need to take note of spiritual corruption that results from relational compromise, not simply because it, it really disgusts the Lord, but ultimately because it defiles his people. In verse 11 again, it says that Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves. What does that mean, the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves? What do you think that means? That's a specific reference to God's People, not a building, not a temple, the, not the physical temple, but the people of God. They are the sanctuary in which the Lord dwells. The New Testament is pretty definitive on this point. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Corinthians 3. Both talk about the fact that we as individuals and as a corporate body of Christ are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the fact is, folks, you can disagree with what I'm saying here this morning, but the fact is we're not our own, are we? We're not our own. We can't marry anyone we want to. We can't go into business with anyone we want to. We can't enjoy intimate communion and intimate fellowship with everyone in the world. It is spiritually impossible. There is a sharp inherent distinction between believers and non-believers, God says. There's this basic spiritual chasm that can never be bridged as long as the unbelieving party refuses to accept Jesus Christ. So, here's the application. Blunt, plain and simple. No matter how much you love your girlfriend, or boyfriend, or fiancé, if you are a believer and he or she is not, you will never be able to become one spiritually until they get Christ living in their life. You never will. No matter how well you do business with the friend you grew up with, sooner or later, there's going to be a decision or a direction upon which you will not agree because of the difference in spiritual loyalties. There will always be spiritual sticking points. 
someone is going to have to compromise. And God doesn't want it to be a compromise of his people against his truth. He doesn't want that. What's God saying here? He's implying that we can't have unbelieving friends? We should only shop at Christian-run stores? Hire Christian carpenters? Plumbers? We ought to take ourselves out of the real world? Live in a cloister somewhere? Absolutely not. What Malachi is addressing here, what the Apostle Paul reiterated to the church and what Jesus always taught, is that we are limited as to how far we can identify with the world. There are boundaries. If we blur that line between our distinctiveness as God's children and our identification with the world, you know what happens? We become spiritually corrupt. God expects us to be distinct in some way. Yet at the same time, he places us right in the middle of a spiritually corrupt world. The old preacher Vance Havner used to say, we're not to be isolated, but insulated. Moving in the midst of evil, but untouched by it. Jesus used this key phrase to identify and describe our relationship to the world. You know what it was? Simple. Five words. Commit them to memory. In it, not of it. That's pretty simple, isn't it? In it, not of it. Read John 17, verse four, verses 14 and 19 this week. See what he prays for. Too often, you know what happens? We try so much to identify with it that we lose our distinctiveness from it. Joe Aldrich used to call it these two principles that we need to maintain in balance. Radical identification with the world and radical separation from it. Those two things held in balance. How you doing with that? How am I doing with that? Folks, God loves the sanctuary of his people. Jesus loves the church. He gave himself for it. It's still his bride. The apple of his eye. And his bold desire is that we would be set apart unto him. And that's what the word holy really means. It means set apart. Set apart from the sinful aspects of the world. Set apart to the purity and truth of his character. And he wants to put us on, his bride, his body, his church, like a clean garment to adorn him, spotless, wrinkle-free. The question is, and I go back to the one at the beginning, do you really love him enough to get clean. I'm going to close with this. In his book, God is the Gospel, John Piper essentially asks whether or not we are really in love with God. And this is how he puts it. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. Listen carefully. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all your friends that you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, 
all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict nor any natural disaster, could you be satisfied with this heaven if Christ were not there? Think about that. It'll take you all week. It'll take you all your life. I got to tell you, I hear those words and maybe some of you hear those words and you're saying to yourself, you know, I just might be okay with that. If you're honest. But you and I, if we're deeply in love with God as we like to say we are, or like we should be, like God says we should be, we could never be satisfied in a heaven without Jesus Christ. Amen. Never. Amen. And it ought to stand to reason that we should never be satisfied on this earth without Jesus Christ. We only get to that place in our relationship by taking our relationship to him seriously. That's all he wanted in Malachi's day. And his charge to them is his caution to us. When it comes to relational compromise, wake up to the personal implications. Take note of the spiritual corruption and get serious about the inevitable consequences. Verse 12, I don't even need to comment on it. But just read it. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. That phrase, everyone who awakes and answers, that's an idiom which is nearly impossible to translate, the scholars say. But they agree that the emphasis of the text seems to indicate that regardless of who it is, everyone across the board, everyone who is alive, whoever commits this against the community of God, will suffer consequences. No extenuating circumstances are listed here. The discipline applies irrespective of the person involved. Me, you, anyone. God says, I won't overlook it. Seriousness of this is not to be underestimated. 30 years ago, God, Time Magazine's first all-text cover asked this question. Is God dead? Listen, if there is no God, then nothing matters. But the flip side is there is a God, then nothing else matters. This book testifies that there is a God, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Are you seeking him? Seek him. If you're seeking him and you want to have prayer with somebody today, there'll be a few of us up in the balcony waiting for you. We'd love to pray with you. Let's pray right now. Father in heaven, Jesus, I want to say that I am crazy in love with you. And yet I vacillate. I go back and forth. In my, in my words, I say it. And sometimes in my heart, I don't feel it. I beg you, dear Jesus, for all of us in this room today, 
Give us a love for you that we've never experienced before as we leave this place. That may translate into a life that has lived before you like never before. That we may be a testimony to the world around us. That we may be able to live our lives as the song that we sang earlier, in Christ alone. 